Well, I took this off and I should have just left it on. All right, when we think about leadership in the church, I want to go in a different direction than what you might normally think. I want to stay in the Old Testament for a little while uh, when we talk about leadership in the church. When, when we look at the history of the Jews, there's not many people, if they were to look for one of, the, one of their leaders, if they had a leader that they looked to, they did have a leader that they looked to, as their most productive leader, one that they uh, rested their confidence in so much that it was one that even in the leaders to come, they were looking for and they compared all of them to this leader. Who would that be? What king was it? King David. I think think King David. Um, Now, as we look at King David... I think there's no denying that he was a great leader. I mean, we see that. But uh, chances are, you think he wouldn't have been able to be an elder at one of our churches? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, we, we probably would not allow him to be an elder, and, you know, because of uh, the history. But, I mean, here is a man after God's own heart. Here's a man that could lead a nation. Here's a man that even God talked about David and, and praised David for who he was and how he led. Now, we know all of his shortcomings, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. We're not going to look at all the sins of David because there, there are many, just like we would, we're, we're not going to look at the sins of Matt either. You know, I'm not going to call out your sins either. But his, you know, we see a lot of his life laid out. I mean, they even have, even the nation of you know, Israel today, their, their flag is the Star of David. I mean, they, they still hold David in high regard. And, and I think when we look at leadership in the Bible, I think we can look a lot to David uh, for, what he, for what he did, what he stood for, how he handled himself in situations, how we can follow that, not follow that at times when we need to, and we can parlay that into male leadership in the church. And I think you'll see. I just think there's some things about David that stand out to me that help us understand how we can be leaders in the church and better leaders in the church today. Um, and the first thing I think we see about David is that David knew how to wait. He knew to be patient. You know, when you look at 1 Samuel 16, if you, you, you want to turn there, 1 Samuel 16... Uh, when he comes into the picture, David's a little ruddy kid here. When Samuel's going to anoint this king, because Saul has already messed up, offered the sacrifice, and the kingdom has been torn away from him. Uh, Agag's been hacked into pieces. Love that passage. <laughs> and when you, when you get here, when Samuel is going through the house of Jesse, it says, verse, uh, verse 9, then, then Jesse made... Shema passed by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? He said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is, he's keeping sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him. For we will not sit down until he comes. 
And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is 1 Samuel 16. David's anointed king over Israel. Next few passages we read how David begins to play the harp for Saul to soothe him. But wait, David is the king of Israel. But he's serving in Saul's kingdom to play the harp. Next chapter we're going to see about Goliath coming into play. Samuel, uh, David goes out to fight Goliath. Because the king is supposed to go fight and Saul hadn't gone to fight. They're looking for a soldier to go fight. He puts on the armor of Saul. He can't handle it. He just runs out there to fight. But Saul's still king, but, but God already anointed David as king. His best friend's Jonathan, who's Saul's son. And he serves in Saul's kingdom. He's married Saul's daughter. And uh, interesting story on that. I, when Saul gives David to Michael, uh, gives David Michael to marry, you remember David had to go out and get so many foreskin. A couple months ago, I was in elementary chapel at Mars Hill, and this was the text. And I read the text without thinking about elementary chapel. And I just read right through foreskin. And I just kept going. And as soon as I did, there was a little girl in the front row in the third grade raised her hand. And I just knew, I kept avoiding her. I just knew she was going to ask, what is foreskins? What, what did he have to get? And I just knew that was her question. And I just kind of avoided it, avoided it. I said, let's sing a song. And then she saw that, Mr. Rabbit, Mr. Rabbit, Mr. Rabbit. And I said, okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Yes, sweetie. And she says, I believe his name, her name was Michelle. David did not marry a man. And I'm like... Oh, you're probably right. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I dodged the bullet there. But, you know, in that story there, you know, David has, is, you know, he's serving the king. He's married the king's daughter. He's, he's, um, he's best friends with Saul. But he's already been anointed king. David has to run away and hide because Saul's chasing him. Saul is in a cave relieving himself, and David has the opportunity to kill him, but he doesn't because he doesn't want to hurt the Lord's anointing. But David is king. <laughs> you know, you think about if that was you. If you were anointed king over Israel when you were a young kid, and you know you're going to be king over Israel, and you know God is not pleased with the, with the king right now, I we might do things a little different. We might go in there and say, now listen, I'm King Saul. You go out there and fight that giant right now. I'm telling you to. Because God anointed me king. Or when David is running away, he, he could have said, no, no, I'm staying. This is my palace now. God anointed me king. You're not the guy. You messed up. I'm the guy now. But he still served in Saul. Even when Saul died... David was in mourning because Saul was the Lord's anointed. David knew how to wait. He knew how to wait. He knew how to be patient and wait for his time. 
You know, there's something to be said for paying your dues. You know, I think so. That he was serving in whatever capacity he was serving in, even though he knew that he was going to be anointed king. He knew that he was going to be serving the people, but he had to wait. You know, good leaders in the church know how to wait. Good leaders, good elders, they know how to wait. Sometimes there are things that you might want to get done, but there you don't need to rush into things. You need to make sure you have prayerfully uh, went, in, uh, went into prayer about this and be very thoughtful about things and, and discussed things and made sure you are ready to make this decision or to go in this direction and not jump into something too quickly. Waiting is a hard thing to do. Being patient is a hard thing to do. But when we look at God's people, God's always taught us about how waiting is important. The children of Israel had to wait in the wilderness before going into the promised land. They had to wait in captivity for the 70 years. The people had to wait for Christ to come. And we're still waiting on the day of judgment. So we have to understand that if, you know, to be a leader in the church, we've got to understand that we must be patient with some of the things that we might want to do or what people might want us to do. But you also cannot be, number two, you can't be very passive. You can't be passive as a leader in the church. In the next chapter, you have where Goliath comes into the picture, and we know the story that happens with Goliath. We know he comes out, he makes the challenge. And when we look on over in the text, uh, now Saul and all the men, verse 19 of chapter 17, now Saul and, and all, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, he left the sheep with the keeper, and he took provisions, and he went. As Jesse had commanded him, he goes and then he hears what all is happening. And then um, when he makes that challenge and he hears it, David is like, Who's, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? We're, we're not, we're not going to sit here and let, let him talk to us like that, are we? We're not going to stand for this. And remember when David finally went into battle, he ran to take on the giant. He ran to take him on. He was, he was not going to be very passive about it. I mean, it would have been very easy for him to say, well, I need to wait now. I'm not king now. You're king. It's time for you to lead, Saul. But he took charge. And there needs to be a time where we need to learn how to take charge as men in the church. And now I want to spend a little time on this here. Men in the church, for the most part, are passive. We're very passive. Um, and when you look at how God has designed for men to be the leaders of the church, we don't... I think we would all agree that... Uh, um, now, I may be wrong. Who came up with this? Who fixed this right here? This is really nice. Who fixed this? There you go. See what I mean? Your wife. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for the most part, our wives, they do a whole lot for the church. A lot of behind the scenes. They teach our children. They prepare our foods. And, and, and I'm, I'm a big believer in that when, in Acts chapter 6, when they're selecting these, six, these seven men to go out, the first deacons, 
and to make sure the Hellenistic widows are not being overlooked in their meals. You know, I, I have a I, I believe that probably they went home first and said, "Honey." I got to get some food to these Hellenistic widows. Can you make a casserole? <laughs> you know, I think that's probably a lot of what it was. And he, he went and probably took it and made sure that they were fed because the disciples didn't have time to fool that. They, had to, they were too busy in teaching and preaching. So God has asked us as men to be the leaders in the church. And we are, but we see how our wives really, they don't have that problem. Wives take the initiative. Women take the initiative with things. That's, that's, that's given to them. They have women's intuition. They have this nurturing aspect that they are naturally gifted at doing that and taking the lead on that and not forgetting to do things, fixing the lunches, getting the kids ready for school. Knowing, you know, you know my, our banking, my wife's an accountant. All of our banking is done by my wife. If something happens to her, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, she knows all of the insurance information. That's her. You know, she, she knows when all the kids' doctor's appointments and dentist appointments and all that stuff is taken. That's her. She schedules all that. I mean, she makes our house go. Now, I help with the laundry sometimes. I help with the dishes. I do. But for the most part, she buys the groceries. She takes care. Our house would not run if it wasn't for my wife. If we're looking for something, if you're looking for something at home, who do you ask? Honey, where's this? It's in the fridge. It's in the cabinet. It's in this drawer. Women have that gift of not being passive, of being assertive in that area. Men, when it comes, we think we're aggressive. We think we're assertive. But not when it comes to this. Not when it comes to this. That's why we have so many men, or, or that's why we have so, many, so much trouble trying to get men to teach or trying to get men to do different things. And I think there's a reason for that. All right? Look in Genesis chapter 3 for just a second. In Genesis chapter 3, first man, first woman. I think this is, this is a lot of how we were created here. He said to the woman, uh, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. All right, let's, let's stop there for just a second. Is that what God said? Is that what God said? You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the mist in the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, when we look back at what God told Adam in the text, now I'm not suggesting, and I appreciated the prayer that you said that I don't add or take away. I'm not suggesting that God did not say that. I don't know that he did. But what's recorded is we don't see. That's what God said. What's the difference? What did Eve say to the serpent that's different than what God told Adam? Don't touch it. You see that? There's a difference there. God didn't tell Adam, I don't want you to touch it. He said, you can eat any tree of the, fruit of the, gar any tree of the garden, but not from this the fruit of this tree. But when Adam tells Eve that, at least what Eve tells the serpent that she was told, now God could have told Eve that. But we don't have record of that specifically. We have, she said, God said this. 
And I think God told Adam, Adam told Eve, and Adam went overboard with it, which I think is fine because that's what I'm going to say. If I, you know, if I'm going to tell my kid, I don't want you to stick a paperclip in an electrical socket. I'm not going to say that to my kid that's a five-year-old kid. I'm not going to say, don't stick that paperclip in an electrical socket. I'm going to say, don't touch the socket, you know? I'm going I'm to go overboard with it. I'm going to say, no, I don't even want you near the socket. And I can see Adam. God told us we can eat of anything we want here, but he said, we're not to eat of that tree. Honey, I don't even want you to touch it. Don't go near it. Don't go near that tree. So there's a little bit different, which I don't think there's anything wrong with. I'm not saying she lied. You know, I'm, I'm saying that's what she heard from Adam. I believe. I believe. So when she eats, when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Gave some to her husband who was with her. Now, if I say somebody's with me, that means you're close by, doesn't it? So what's Adam doing while this serpent's talking to Eve? What do you think? Well, I think probably he's still just spellbound because she's woman. You know how what Bill Cosby said when, when God, he, we say God made woman. You know, he said, Adam said, whoa, man, <laughs> when he looked at her. You know, she's still naked, you know, he, it's PG-13, okay. She, she still doesn't have clothes on, and he may just be looking at her. I, I don't know, I don't know. But he's, he's right there, and he's, I think he's listening somewhat. Why didn't he stop her? Why, why didn't he say, stop that. Don't, eat, don't listen to that. Don't listen to that snake. Let's, no, no, no. God said we don't need to eat of it. She's got it in her hand. Why don't we have recorded Adam saying, better not do that. But she eats. And then when he sees nothing happens to her, he's like... He eats. And then, since their eyes were both open, and they knew that they were naked, and they hid when the Lord comes looking for them. You know, I could see, you, know, you get the imagery of God walking in the garden, looking for Adam and Eve, knowing exactly where they are. But Adam hiding behind a tree, you know, just not wanting to be seen, peeking around. We were afraid because their eyes were open. He did know both good and evil. They knew what was wrong because they did something that was wrong and they felt the guilt from it. There, we always say, we, we give, I think we give the woman a bad rap here and we say that Eve was the first sinner. Was she? Was Eve the first sinner? Well, go to Romans 5. Hold this, go to Romans 5, and look at this. I used to give chapter headings for my Bible classes, and this was a chapter heading for Romans 5 was the one-man parallel. 
or mine. You may be that in your Bible. It's not in mine, but that's the one I gave to the kids to learn. But listen, listen to this in verse 12, okay? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even when those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if, and this is good here, pay attention, for if many died through the one man's transgression, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that is of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment comes following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses were brought to justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more those who will receive the abundance of grace and of the free gift of righteousness reign in the life of those through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You catch it on here. One man. God gives us a parallel. One man brought sin into the world. One man took sin out. One man brought death. One man brings life. One man brought condemnation. The other man brings justification. It's the one man parallel. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the one man that brings all of those things. So we have to have a man over here to bring these other things. Now, hold on to your horses there. Somebody can say that word man in the Greek can be used as gen not gender specific. Oh, I hate to say that word right there in today's world, you know. But uh, that is true. It could be used as man in general. And she was taken from man. She's part of humanity. Man in the sense of humanity. Humanity brought sin in. Jesus takes sin out. You can look at it that. But did you notice the specificness that we read there? Look in verse, look in verse 14. Yet death reigned from, not Eve to Moses, Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the, what does that say in your Bible? What does that say? Transgression of? Hold up. I've always blamed the woman for all the problems. <laughs> Please, that was a disclaimer. Don't record that and post that anywhere else. Um, we always, Eve was the first sinner, right? Well, there's two types of sins, right? Sins of, what do we call them? Sins of commission, the ones that we do, and sins of omission. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, James says, to him it is sin. Adam's sitting here knowing good and well he should be stopping this. But he doesn't. He's being passive. He's not being the man that he was designed to be. He's allowing... Now, and, now let's look at 1 Timothy 2.4. Look, look at this passage. And you are free 
to disagree with me on this. I do not think this is a matter of salvation. Uh, and you may have heard this. This is not my, it's not a Hupel doctrine. I didn't come up with it, you know. But I think it, I think it makes a lot of sense. For Adam, look at verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. But look at verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue faith in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Adam was not deceived, but the woman is deceived. What does it mean to be deceived? Tricked, had the, the wool pulled over your eyes kind of thing, lured into, deceived, tricked. You can have good intentions and be tricked, right? What's the difference in a sin where you're deceived and a sin where you maybe not be deceived? Have you ever committed a sin that you weren't deceived when you did it? You knew what you was doing when you did it, right? Eve was tricked. Adam wasn't tricked. Adam knew better. Adam knew he probably shouldn't have, he should have stopped Eve from taking that fruit or should have done so. Now there may be something that's not recorded in scripture that happened. Granted, I'll say that. Adam may have said, "Don't do that, Eve." And then when he she ate and he saw nothing happen, and then he ate. Listen, they're living in a whole different world. Their concept of God and our concept of God are two different things. Okay? They walked with God in the cool of the day. He was the first man created. Language is just something new to them. How long before they ate of the fruit from when they were created? I don't know. Could have just been a few days. We don't know how long. But Adam knew that God created him. And Adam knew God said, don't eat of that fruit. And yet he watched as his wife, if, you know, as he called his wife, he watched as she ate. I think he was passive. I think the first sin was not a sin of commission, but a sin of omission. I think Adam didn't do what he was supposed to do and step in and stop because the woman was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. He wasn't tricked. He knew what God said. And yet he let her do that. And I think that sets the stage for the male and our mindset for the rest of life. We don't want to butt in at things where we don't think we need to butt in. We don't want to meddle into things at times. We don't want to Step in and do things that maybe we should do because, well, that's them. That's them. I had an eldership one time I was talking to with a, another family, and I was saying, this family's having some marital trouble. It might be good if y'all, you know, go visit them and step in, you know, and talk to them because they're having some marital trouble. Uh, one was unfaithful. They're trying to work it out, and they're having some problems. And the elder said, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to step in there. That's between him and her. You see, you see the difference? That's between him and her. But you're right. But as a shepherd, you watch out for their souls. It would be good if you go to pray with them. 
if you go to see if there's anything you can help. We don't want them knowing that we know that they're having problems. Because in our minds as men, ignorance is bliss. You know what I mean? We're passive. We are passive. So how about this? God knows what women... God made us to be the leaders. It's very clear. It doesn't say wife of one husband for the elder. It's the husband of one wife. A man must be a father. A man must be these things in the qualifications for elders and deacons. Men are the ones that are supposed to lead in worship. And, you know, the world is telling us, oh, that's a cultural thing. That's all culture. Well, no, we're taking it back here to then. What if we looked at it this way? We're not asked to lead because we were created first. We're asked to lead because God says, if I don't make you do something, you won't. If I don't give you the responsibility specifically and tell you this is what you're supposed to do, you're going to be just like Adam and just twiddle your thumbs as you watch problems happen. When you should be stepping in and stopping when you see a problem. Maybe that's why, and I'll tell you who love this lesson, is women. <laughs> women love it because it, we know women make the church work. We know they're involved. But in a world of today where we have this, we're coming across as uh, uh, arrogant because we're better, we think we're better than women. We don't think that. I hope we don't think that. We think we're better than women and that's why God made us this. God gave us, he, did, he didn't give the wisdom to women, he gave the wisdom to men. Or That kind of mindset, you we were already, when something happened in the church a few years ago, uh, there was a story on, with Nancy Grace on CNN or whatever, and they were talking about the church as a cult because they only have men that lead it. You know, that's not, we're not a cult because we, what if we looked at is the only, that God makes men the leaders because he knew women, they're fine. They can handle it. They can do it. How many families do you see where the mom comes with the kids and the dad don't come? Do you see that much the other way around? You don't see where the dad brings the kids and the mom don't. She's, she's not faithful. You don't see, it happens, but you don't see it often. But you see the flip side a whole lot. God says women know what to do. Men, if I don't make you do it, I'm afraid you won't. So I'm not only going to make you do it, I'm going to hold you accountable for it. Be the father that you're supposed to do. Lead your family. Drive the bus. Now when it comes to the church, I want you to lead in the church. I want you to be the man. Stand up and take role. You know, there's a... Have you heard of, a, have you heard of churches that are so small that... There's no man. It's just a bunch of women. There's no man to preach, no man to pray. They've got men there, but they don't want to do it. They don't feel like they're qualified to do it. What are those poor women to do? Go. 
God gave us a responsibility. So, when we look at the life of David, you know, I led that into to bring you to this point about the passiveness. David knew how to wait because he waited before he really became king. But David knew how to not be passive. David knew how to take charge when he needed to take charge. And that's a big deal for us as leaders in the church. Maybe we need to step up our game a little bit, not because God created man first. And there is something to say for that. You know, there is something to say for that. That he designed man, but then he looked at man and said, man's not complete. There's something missing in man. So I'm going to make a help meet for him. Something comparable to him. Something that can help him. So he designed woman. Who when you look at the two parts of us, we, we match perfectly. Not just sexually, but intellectually, uh, socially, emotionally. You know, we fit. God knows women can handle things. And they can lead. It's ingrained in them to take charge and do those things. So he says, man, I'm going to make you, man, I'm going to make you do this. I'm going to make you the leaders. I'm going to hold you accountable for it. Because I know that if, you, if I don't make you, you might not do it. And you'll let someone else do it. So maybe this women's role is not us men doing what we're supposed to do. This, this woman's role issue today. Maybe that's the biggest problem. So let's go back to David. Well, any comments on that? I mean, that's pretty heavy. But I feel like you've probably heard that before. All right. All right. Well, let's, let's move on for just a few minutes. I spent way too much time on that. But um, David was also a great leader <coughs> because he's relatable. What makes David relatable to us? He made mistakes. He had a good heart. You, you ever think that when you read the Psalms and you hear how David is crying out in these Psalms and you think, man, if God hears his prayers, wow, he's got to hear mine. <laughs> you know, David, not, not only did he commit adultery with Bathsheba. There are, there's a school of thought out there I don't necessarily buy into. There's a school of thought out there that David almost raped Bathsheba. I don't, I don't believe that. But as if she had no choice because he was the king. I don't, I don't think so. But, you know, if he did, that just adds to the list of things that he did. I mean, he, he put Uriah on the front line to be killed, to kind of cover it up to make it out like he came home to sleep with his wife and get pregnant and then left and was killed in battle when he never really came home, remember? He stayed at the gates there, at the, at the doorstep there. He had him killed. He had committed the affair, lost a child because of it. Remember when the Ark of the Covenant came back, what did he do? He danced naked, you know? He danced naked, and his wife was like, that's embarrassing. You know, and this, this, is, this is David. David killed tens of thousands. Like I say, 
If he was up for an elder, somebody would say something about it, wouldn't he? David is somebody that I think all of us can look at and say, if God can look at that man and say he's got a good heart, then he can definitely look at mine and have a great heart. A good leader is somebody that can relate to everybody in the church in some way, that can be able to communicate with those people in the church. You know, I, I, think, I think the eldership is an is a awesome responsibility for anybody to, to undergo, to, to take on. I do, but, but you all know those elders, maybe when you were growing up, the elders that related more to you. The elders that showed up at the ball games that you participated in as a kid or the elders that showed up at the funeral visitations when someone you had pass away or the elder that come to the hospital when your dad was in the hospital as a kid and you watched and you listened to them pray or the elder that would get up and preach or make a plea from the congregation for a cause that needed funds or an elder that got up and prayed for somebody that was very sick or somebody that had cancer in the congregation it was an urgent prayer request and said I'm going to ask all the men to get down on one knee and pray as we do that you've seen elders do things like that and you feel a connection with them because you feel like you can relate to them if you don't relate to people you probably don't need to be an elder I mean, you can, you can still do some eldership things, but you might be better served as a deacon. Because sometimes deacons, deacons are the guys that do the work, you know. That, that a lot of times we've got it mixed up. We think, we think elderships are like board meetings. They shouldn't be, you know. Now, I'm not the preacher here. I can say some things and I can leave after a while and then leave you all to deal with it. So... <laughs> But our eldership should not be about board meetings. Shepherds didn't have board meetings. Shepherds were involved in the lives of the sheep. They made sure they fed them, led them, and interweave them into life. That, that's what an eldership does. Um, that's what a true leader does. They relate well to the body. Everybody knows who they are. Everybody knows their heart. Everybody knows they mean well. Everybody knows they make mistakes. Everybody knows they're not perfect. But everybody knows they're trying their hardest. They're involved in the lives of the sheep. David was a man, as a leader, he, he was able to be relatable to people. He knew what it was like to be on the other side and be an outsider. To have people not want to have anything to do with him. To feel like God had left him out to dry. To feel like he was an outsider. That's what made him more powerful as a king. Because everybody related well to him. Everybody could connect with him in some way. That's what we need to be as men in the church. If we're going to connect, if we want to be a leader and step up like that. Then, then you know, finally here, I'll, I'll make these quick notes here so we can move on. Um, 
two, two quick ones here. David was a great leader because he was respected. You know, not only is he relatable to everybody, he was able to be respected. You can't lead unless you're respected. Uh, case in point, you know, our last presidential, last couple presidential elections, we've heard the phrase, not my president. You know, if we, if you lose respect, if people lose their respect for you, they won't, they won't follow you. So how was respect seen? Well, when, um, I'm, I'm a big Laker fan. I, I love the Los Angeles Lakers. I don't, I, the only reason I can tell you why is because I love basketball and we had an antenna with three channels. We didn't have cable. So the only time basketball came on TV, it was either the Boston Celtics and the Lakers or, the, you know, the 76ers. And I just can't stand green. So I'm a Laker fan. But Larry Bird, he was an amazing player. When he was talking about leadership and respect, this is what he said. Leadership is diving for a loose ball. Leadership is getting the crowd involved, getting other players involved. It's being able to take it as well as dish it out. That's the only way you're going to get respect from other players. Basically what he's saying is you earn respect by doing the dirty work. There's no job that's beneath you. There's no job that's beneath you. We have Dexter Rutherford as our, our principal right now. He was our, our headmaster for a while. He's our, our principal. And I think he was really relatable to everybody because we would come to the ball games and we'd have something and somebody would come up and say, oh, the men's toilet's clogged. I'll go fix it. Well, he's, he, he's the boss. He's, go, go get that plunger and fix that toilet over there. But he did it. You see the difference? You know, David was that kind of person. And I think that's what we need in the leadership role. Here's a couple other quotes on leadership. George Foreman said, Without appreciation and respect for other people, true leadership becomes ineffective, if not impossible. Brian Tracy Respect is the key determinant of a high-performance leadership. How much people respect you determines how well they perform. And then one more that I have a quote that I wrote down for. John Maxwell, love his leadership stuff. He says, leadership is about influence, nothing more, nothing less. It's about your influence. How do you have great influence? You're respected by other people. David was able to have the respect of the people. Still today, they're looking for somebody to reign like, on, like David did on his throne. The apostles were looking for somebody for Jesus to come to reign like David did. You know, that's the kind of men we need to step up in our congregations. Men that are respected. Men that are relatable. Men that are not passive. But men that know how to wait. And lastly, men that know the shepherd, not just the psalm. When you read the 23rd Psalm, you find somebody that's intimately equated with the true shepherd, as David writes it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me 
to lie down in green pastures. You, you've heard the story of the guy who got up. There was a young whippersnapper of a preacher got up and, and he read the 23rd Psalm. And, and when he finished, everybody just, you know, nodded and a few amens. And then this older gentleman gets up and he reads the 23rd Psalm. He barely makes it up there with his cane, waddles, puts his glasses on and he, he starts to read and then takes his glasses off and closes his eyes and then quotes it. And then when he finishes, there's like, you know, people are just crying. The young man went up there and asked, what's the difference between you reading it and I reading it? It's the same words. And the man said, sir, you know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. There's a difference. There's a difference in your relationship with God. How intimately you are acquainted with God. Me and we are called to be God's leaders in the church. He demands us to stand up, act like men, be strong, know how to wait, but don't be passive, know how to relate, and know how to be respected. Earn the respect of the members by doing the, the, the dirty work. You are not over them in the sense of like a boss is or a CEO is. You're not a board of directors. You're shepherds. And I love it when churches put that on their bulletin, not elders, but shepherds. When they, because that leads, shepherds are intertwined with the lives of the sheep. They know the sheep by name. They know where they work. They know what they do for the most part. It's hard to learn everybody. But they're intertwined. They're relatable to them. If we can have men in the church like that, our churches will feel more like a family. This, this movement that's going on right now with a bunch of churches, you know, uh, exploding, uh, Church of the Highlands and, and other things that are exploding, the reason why they are is because they're putting those people to work very quickly. They're getting people to know them and getting them connected within the body of their congregation very quickly. Well, of all people, we should be doing that. That should be what we're doing. Let's pray. God, thank you so much again. Thank you for these men and their willingness to listen. And Father, I, I pray that they just don't take my words, but they, they take your word as their guidance. And that maybe things that, that, that I bring today to the table to, to motivate, to encourage, Father, and maybe just help us see things a little differently than maybe what we did. Help us to be the men that you want us to be. Help us to step up and not be passive. But help us to lead as the God-designed leaders that we are. We love you so much and we're thankful for your example and what you gave us. And not just David, but in the example that you gave us with your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.